Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. How would you get more than 5,000 people to show up at your church? Almost every pastor feels the pressure to get people in the doors. More people means more success, more stability, and more godly influence, right? Often in their zeal for fruit and growth, pastors and church leaders adopt worldly mechanisms for church growth that end up undermining the very call God has given them. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, was a pastor to well over 5,000 people in a day long before megachurches were the norm. But you might be surprised to know that Spurgeon's vision for ministry was not pragmatic. He didn't borrow best practices from the business leaders of his day. Rather, his ministry vision was decidedly, staunchly biblical and theological in nature. And it was a ministry vision we ought to adopt more than a century later. In Spurgeon the Pastor, Jeff Chang, director of the Spurgeon Library right here at Midwestern Seminary, shows how Spurgeon models a theological vision of ministry in preaching, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, meaningful church membership, biblical church leadership, leadership development, and more. Don't get caught up in worldly methods to pursue ministry growth. Follow the example of the Prince of Preachers and entrust your ministry to the sovereignty of the Prince of Peace. Dr. Jeff Chang is an assistant professor of church ministry and historical theology right here at Midwestern, as well as curator of the Spurgeon Library. He has served on ministry staff at Houston Chinese Church in Houston, Texas, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and most recently at Henson Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon. And he's here in his very own Spurgeon Library. This is where the studio is. Uh, The curator just took three steps to the left to come into the studio. Yeah, Jared, I've made it across the wall behind me into this studio (laughs) to be on your show. Thank you so much. (laughs) He's here to talk about his new book, Spurgeon the Pastor, Recovering a Biblical and Theological Vision for Ministry. How you doing, man? <laughs> we got faculty workshop today. Are you excited? Uh, I'm excited. Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, it's great to hear your radio voice here. I mean, I know. I, this is this is. Phenomenal. You know what's funny well is uh, uh, last month I was preaching in Tomball. So we're both yeah, Houston boys. I was right. preaching in Tomball, Texas, and I was losing my voice mm. during one of the uh, um, you know messages. It was during the second service. I was starting to lose my voice. But it was I was my preaching voice, and I was showing the folks like like someone brought me a cup of water like it was so bad someone brought me a cup of water from the back you know yeah, when they yeah. got to interrupt and I was getting a, a you know fishing a cough drop out of my pocket and but I was showing them how like I could talk to them in just my normal mm-hmm, voice mm-hmm. but I couldn't preach because I couldn't <laughs> use my preaching voice and I was showing the difference it is a different thing it's isn't a it? different thing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you and I were sitting here without the mics I wouldn't be speaking like this with my you well know. <laughs> that's the fun part so you're right across the table and you're speaking right. to me with this voice that's great I that's love it. right. Um, did you know, this is my sort of, uh, uh, the get to know each other sort of thing, even though we, we know each other. Uh, my first job in Houston was at a Chinese Baptist church. Did you know that? Yeah, I did. I did know that. You, you're like a fellow Chinese church pastor. That's <laughs> well, great. It was, it, it, it was youth director. I think yeah, it was my yeah. title. I, you know, it, it was a student ministry role and, uh, it was Zion Chinese Baptist church, which was a congregation. Uh, Dr. Victor Wong was a pastor. Mm. Uh, were you, you you weren't familiar with, know, with them at all? I don't okay. know that church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th- they met in Houston Northwest Baptist Church's building in the okay. big Sunday school room. And um, I was trying to do Willow Creek style. Mm. This is my attractional days. Mm. Uh, I was trying to do kind of like Willow Creek style seeker sensitive thing for um, Chinese kids aged. When they said youth, I was thinking, you know, traditionally 7th through 12th grade. Right. It was literally like third grade 
I don't even think I had high schoolers. The oldest yeah. student might have been maybe ninth grade or so, yeah. but it was almost like children's ministry. Yeah, right. And we're doing, you know, Christianized version of Tom Petty songs and <laughs> things. Uh, I learned a lot uh, in sure terms of what too. not to do. <laughs> yeah, that was my foray into uh, in, into Chinese ministry and to um, seeker ministry. And well, I still love ministry. the Chinese church. I've come out of that. Uh, I grew up in that. I was converted in that, mm. uh, and I pray that. You know, even as I serve in a broader context now, but I still have many friends in it and I want to be of help to them. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk to you about this book. So obviously there's a lot on Spurgeon the Preacher, mm. um, even in our own sort of resources here in right. our own Spurgeon library. Everyone knows Spurgeon the Preacher. I mean, maybe not everyone, but yeah, that's how he's known. Yeah. The Prince of Preachers. There are an increasing number of forays into his theology, a lot mm-hmm. of them produced sure. here. Yep. A lot of PhD students, uh, past and and present, are exploring new avenues of Spurgeon's theology and so forth. What was missing? Why Spurgeon the pastor? Why this book? Yeah, so when I began my PhD studies here at Midwestern, uh, a mentor encouraged me to look into Spurgeon's ecclesiology. Hmm. And just as I looked at the literature, boy, it it sure seemed that folks kind of acknowledged that he was a pastor, but they would quickly move on. To yeah. his preaching ministry, to his philanthropy, to his sort of activism, uh, the, the controversies that he was engaged in. Uh, but, you know, it seemed like they were just sort of taking it for granted, the fact that he was a Baptist pastor. Uh, so I had a chance in my own research to begin looking at uh, the church minute books, mm. uh, to begin looking at his sermons, and, and really looking for, you know, his pastoral writings. And as it turned out, you know, this mega church pastor, maybe the first in church history, uh, he was like a, like a plain Baptist pastor. Yeah. Uh, he, he began pastoring there in this village called Water Beach as a 17-year-old. And it really seems that whatever kind of philosophy of ministry he was carrying on there, he carried that over into London and carried it through his 38 ministry, uh, even when the church grew to be this, this giant church. You said something, that I, I, I've wondered about this, and I should have asked somebody, but you mentioned it might have been the first megachurch, I think. Um, I mean, what was the impression then on on this? I think it's my assumption is that it's the impression we have now, which is why we think of him primarily as a preacher, uh-huh. is that he was a great preacher and just attracted thousands of people. Yeah, and that's kind of the what the substance of his ministry would be. Was it really that innovative? I mean, there weren't big churches like that, or you know, um, you know, the bigger preachers, preachers of his stature, right? Did they tend to be more itinerant type evangelists yeah, they more tend than to, local church pastors? Perhaps more itinerant or or perhaps in church history, what you'll get is, you know, obviously lots of state church context kind of churches. Okay. You know? So this is the first kind of church of this size of its kind, a voluntary church, regenerate church membership, um, you know, in a context where obviously you're not compelled by the state to, to right. attend. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's an, obviously an evangelical church, a Protestant church. So. Uh, in many ways, it is kind of the first of its kind, you know, um, hmm. the largest church in kind of the evangelical world at that time. Yeah. Say more about the um, the theological vision or the biblical vision for ministry. What do we learn from him about about his ecclesiology? Like what is Spurgeon's ecclesiology? Yeah. It, you know, what's so innovative about him is that he's actually going back. Okay. You know, <laughs> the yeah. Baptists of his day are beginning to move on, move away from sort of more Baptist distinctives hmm. uh, in their view of membership, uh, even in their view of baptism. Uh, a lot of folks are moving more towards open membership, uh, not requiring baptism oh, for, wow. okay. for membership. 
Spurgeon, on the other hand, he's going back to the beginning. I mean, he's going back to Benjamin Keach. Uh, he's following the footsteps of guys like Gill and Rippon before him. Uh, and so, you know, he, he is holding to regenerate church membership. They're just the, the basic belief as Baptists that yeah. if you join the church, you should be a Christian, you should be born again, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and you should profess your faith through baptism Yeah. Uh, in that. And, and he's going back to congregationalism, you know, like uh, the way we make decisions in the church is through the local church. You know, yes, you have elders. Yes, you have deacons. But the final authority in the local church is the congregation. Uh, so these kinds of early Baptist convictions, he's really putting into practice. And he's doing it in a context, again, where there's hundreds and thousands coming forward to join the church. Yeah, I do um, want to ask you about that. But where did where did these distinctives for him come from? Like, I mean, he didn't grow up Baptist, right? He didn't. No. So why, even in you know his development as a as a pastor, where did it come from? These convictions to kind of yeah, go he, back to Baptist distinctives. Mm-hmm. He was raised Congregationalist. Okay, uh, the Congregationalists uh, share a lot of these distinctives. You know, con- uh, regenerative well, membership. To, anyway. Yeah, they used to. That's <laughs> right. Uh, congregationalism, uh, plurality of elders. Uh, and certainly, you know, within that reformed stream, you know, these distinctives also exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he, he was kind of drawing from that. For him to become a Baptist, then obviously he's applying believer's baptism to all of that. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's drawing from a rich heritage that, that goes on kind of way before him, starting really back at Calvin, mm-hmm. but then traced through Baptists in England. Yeah. So let's transport the principles of Spurgeon the pastor into the modern day because the, you know, the megachurch thing is a phenomenon now. It's mm-hmm. not unique. It's still statistically minority in mm-hmm. terms of the number of the types of congregations in evangelicalism, but their number is is growing. And sort of the the common take from, you know, folks in, 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 in our tribe, I suppose, and maybe even outside, is that uh, once you get past a certain amount, I don't know what the magic number is, right. but uh, bigger churches, well, undoubtedly it's harder. Yeah. It becomes more difficult to scale leadership, to do meaningful membership, yeah. uh, effective pastoral care especially, right. and church discipline. Um, we were just speaking with a couple last night who came, um, prospective members at um, Liberty Baptist Church where I'm a pastor now. Um and in their membership interview, they were talking about their church past. Mm. And, um, you know, one of them comes from, you know, kind of mega church backgrounds. Mm. Every church he's been a part of has been a very large church. Right. And one of the things, you know, we asked sort of like what drew you to liberty. And one of the things she said was, um, I've never been a part of a church that, number one, either um, had membership or that it was significant. It yeah. meant something beyond how do we identify what volunteer role you're going to do or something like that? Like that was appealing. Uh, church discipline, those sorts of things. The assumption by a lot of us is once you get beyond a certain size, you, you can't right. really do these things or not in any meaningful way. And Spurgeon is evidence that you can. Mm-hmm. So what are the implications for megachurch practice from, you know, what Spurgeon is doing? What are the implications for us, I guess, in that? Regard. Yeah, my main encouragement for church leaders in that megachurch context, when they read Spurgeon's life, my, my goal is not for them to, you know, look for an ha- a how-to manual, right? <laughs> okay, like all right. Supposed to follow step-by-step <laughs> step what he does. That's not the yeah. point. But but watch this pastor. Yeah. You know, as, but I mean, he's proof that you can do it. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Watch this pastor as he maintains his biblical convictions about what the church is to be and what a pastor is to be, even as his church blows up, mm-hmm. right? 
so one example of that, I can give many, you know, one example, uh, his membership process, when he, when he first arrived at the church, he had about, you know, a few dozen people there, you know, within months and, and even a couple of years, I mean, the church is in the hundreds and each member's meeting, they are taking in 40, 50, 80 people into membership. <laughs> and yet he never changes his membership process. He has this mm-hmm. membership process. This is like six step process where you meet with multiple pastors. You, you, you actually go to the person's uh, neighborhood and place of work and like ask people, Hey, how's this person's testimony? Oh my word. And when, no, okay. Did you know that he was a Christian? Did you know that he's joining the Metropolitan Tabernacle? Yeah. Uh, and then the congregation ultimately votes on them coming in. So 80 people, 100 people join the church at any given members meeting, and they're walking through this pretty rigorous process. And, yeah. and for Spurgeon, that was important because he saw a revival happening in his day, and he wanted to guard against the kind of nominalism. Mm. So he wasn't afraid to make the, the process rigorous for joining, joining the church. Yeah. I'm not saying we have to do that. <laughs> and you might get sued today if you try to do that oh, yeah, exact right, same right, process. Right. Yeah. But, but the point is, watch this pastor as he kind of maintains his convictions, even as the church is growing, because he knows that these things— are, are important for what the church is. Right? Yeah. It, it guards that, that regenerative. What membership. percentage of attendance, I, I wish I knew this, uh, mm. or I should have known this, if there's 5,000 or more attending, how many members would there be in any given time? Yeah, uh, 5,000 plus membership, that was towards the latter part of his ministry. So that'd be members, not just folks attending mm, the that's church. That's right, yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah, when he died, it was like 5,300 members. Uh, the, the, the auditorium sat 6,000 at okay. the tabernacle. Okay. Well, People back then were skinnier. They could squeeze yeah, that's in, right. okay. sit in the aisles. The fire codes are different. Yeah. But uh, no, it, you know, throughout when he, when he built the tabernacle, I think the church was, the membership was closer to like 2,000, I think. Okay. Uh, and so it grew over time up to 5,000. Um, but you'd have a, a lot of people attending. And he's constantly trying to think about how, how do we, with so many people showing up, how do we make clear who the church is? Right. right? Uh, how do we not just... And, and, and he was preaching to these visitors, calling them, hey, don't just show up. No, join a church. Find a church that you can join. If it's not going to be here, go somewhere else, right, where, where you can become a member. So, I mean, it's congregational church. So they're voting on not just accepting members but other things as well, Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. another fascinating yeah. piece yeah, to watch because, you know, when he joins the church, they have congregational meetings once a month okay. to, to, to bring people into membership. They're having so many people join. That, you know, a few years in, they're needing to meet like six or seven times a month. Can you imagine seven congregational meetings a month? No. <laughs> no. But, what? Uh, you know, they're <laughs> sort of, they meet on Monday nights for prayer meeting. And so beforehand, they'll, okay. they'll call a quick members meeting for whoever's there and just take a few people in. Right, right. right. And then after the prayer meeting, they'll, they'll call another members meeting and take a few more people in. That's just so they can process all these people through membership. Uh, but he's convinced it's the congregation that brings people in membership. The elders can't just like right. unilaterally do it. You know? Right, right. Um, and, and I think that those members meetings were actually very joyful because they were hearing all these wonderful testimonies of people being saved. Yeah. Now, how do they manage pastoral care for 5,000 people? I mean, the, the mathematical answer in some sense <laughs> is that you're scaling eldership yeah. for the growth of the congregation. But at some point, you hit 5,000, like, do you have 100 pastors? Do you have right. 200 pastors? Like, at some point, you have to figure out some other way yeah. to scale this. So how did they do it there? Yeah, a couple of things there. When Spurgeon arrived, he was kind of the solo pastor. They had the sort of solo pastor, deacon board sort of model. Yeah. Uh, by 1859, five years in, he's able to move towards a plurality of elders. 
Uh, and that was huge. I mean, he says, if I didn't have these elders with me, like this church would be a sham, he says, uh, because we wouldn't be able to care for these people. Right. Throughout his ministry, he on average had about 30 elders with him. Uh, and they're, they're talking. I mean, w- when you look at elder meeting minutes, uh, it's actually quite boring because mm. all they're doing is just like the, the stuff that we do in elders meetings today. We're talking about, hey, have you seen so-and-so? Right. Hey, how's this person doing? Did you follow up with this person like you said you mm. would? And they're just talking about pastoral care stuff. Yeah. Uh, they're talking about how to keep up visitation. Uh, one of the things that they do is every member every year would get a, a communion card uh, with perforated tickets. Okay. And whenever you came to the Lord's Supper, you'd turn in a ticket. Uh, and that was sort of one way they sort of fenced the table oh, to know who was members. And those tickets had numbers on them for each member. So the elders <laughs> okay. would get a report um, regularly on who hasn't showed up to the Lord's Supper in three oh. months. Oh. And so those would be particular lists that they would follow up with. And, 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 and so if you're not attending, they had a way to track that. And, and the elders would go look after you. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard that. Does, do you know? Are there any? Is anyone do that today? You know, I I don't know anybody who does that today. <laughs> right. Uh, but I think the ticket practice came from the Scottish Presbyterians because uh, okay. you know, they they had the communion tokens or or okay. coins that they would use okay. to sort of uh, attend the Lord's Supper. But it's like a variation of that. I think. Yeah, the optics aren't great, but mm. I understand the practicality of it. It right. actually is a pretty smart mm-hmm. thing for. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have a church that size, right. I, would, I would think. I, the other big component of pastoral care was just that they were constantly urging the congregation to care for one another. Mm-hmm. You know, so don't, don't just view pastoral care as something that the pastors alone do, but, but yeah. look after each other, you know, disciple one another. If you see somebody's missing, check on them, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So what did the experience of community look like or fellowship look like in, in their church? How did they facilitate that? Um, yeah, they, f- folks were involved in all kinds of different ministries. Uh, you know, Spurgeon encouraged folks to not just attend, but w- what can you do for Christ, right? How are you getting involved with the work of the gospel here in London? Mm. Uh, and so folks would be involved with different outreach ministries. Uh, there would be mission preaching stations that the pastor's college students were getting involved with. So members would get involved with that. They, there was different benevolent ministries. Uh, there were like Bible studies and small groups that people would be a part of, catechism classes. Gotcha. So yeah, all kinds of sort of outside of the Sunday gathering sort of activities that people could connect with. And I, I trust just people having each other over for tea and yeah, yeah, things yeah. that English people do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you you have a chapter in the book um, called The Church Aggressive, uh, yeah. which is a pretty aggressive title actually yeah. for, a, for a chapter. Uh, but you're talking about training, how their church trains sort of the next generation or mm. the next sort of, um, you know, sending capacity of, of church leadership and and pastors and that sort of thing. Uh, it's something you and I are both pretty interested in and invested mm. in, not yeah. just in the seminary, but in our local churches as well. Tell us a little bit about how they trained um, future pastors yeah. there. I mean, we know about the the pastor's college and right. that sort of thing, but was there stuff beyond that? or? Well, that was the heart of it. Okay. You know, pa- that, that was Spurgeon's sort of— nearest and dearest institution attached to the, the tabernacle. Uh, he took on guys who had an evident call from the Lord to preach and to mm. pastor, and he trained them for free, no, no tuition, Wow! Uh, paid, paid for all their costs. But the, the thing that was striking about the pastor's college is that it was so closely connected to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So students would live with members of the church. Often they would live with an elder's family, and they would okay. watch congregational meetings. They would watch the prayer meetings of the church. 
Uh, and the students would talk about how so much of their vision for ministry was shaped by living with that elder, you know, and by, by sort of observing his life and his care for his family and his ministry in the church. In the church. Um, so it was this sort of immersive kind of pastoral training, not only in the classroom, but also in, in the context of the church. And they were, all the students were engaged with all sorts of ministries related to the church also. Yeah. So what was the process for admitting those students in? I'm sure they didn't take just anybody, you know, into that. Yeah. Before. So the, the main requirement that Spurgeon uh, had was that you had to have a, a, a sort of clear calling from the Holy Spirit that you're, you're meant to preach. And what that meant was uh, that somebody has been converted under your preaching. Oh, interesting. So until somebody's been converted <laughs> by your <laughs> ministry, uh, you, you couldn't come and study at the pastor's college. Wow. Uh, yeah, that, that's, isn't that, that's, that's an amazing requirement, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I think for the student, I would imagine for somebody who heard that requirement, like it, it would produce in them just a sense of dependence on the Lord. Like, Lord, if you want me to be in ministry, like you've got to do something here, you know. And, yeah. and obviously you give yourself to preaching the gospel. Uh, but there's this sense of dependence. And then that's the dependence that every pastor should have, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, anyways, if you've, if you've had that seal of the Holy Spirit upon your ministry, then Spurgeon said, yeah, I'll, I'll pay for everything. You don't have to be literate. You, you don't have to have any <laughs> academic yeah. sort of requirements. He did measure their chest, though, didn't he? You have to be able to preach. Right? <laughs> People have to be able to hear you, your voice. You need uh, a barrel-chested <laughs> preacher. Well, know. there's no amplification in those days, right, so right. That, that only makes sense. Uh, but, yeah, besides your ability to preach— and and kind of the seal of the Holy Spirit upon your ministry, mm. um, he would he would cover everything else. Man, imagine if we could just go back to those days. We mm. want to see evidence, and we're just going to get the measuring tape out, <laughs> and that, <laughs> that's all we're going to do. Um, I could have used that, I guess, in sometimes when. Uh, what would that do to Midwestern enrollment? I don't know. Just, I don't know. You know, the free part would draw a lot of people, I don't know. There's but a, then the other part There's a lot of barrel-chested <laughs> folks true. here in the Midwest. <laughs> we're, not, we're not struggling with, yeah. with girth, I don't, <laughs> I don't think, around here. Brother, so um, as a Spurgeon scholar, curator of the Spurgeon Library, you know, did your uh, doctoral research and so on and so forth. Was there anything that you, that you learned in, in writing the book? Or was it just you had it all up here and you're ready just to get it? Oh, no. I mean, it, I— so much of this I, I learned. I mean, it, okay. one of the joys of church history is putting on the Indiana Jones hat and, and going <laughs> and, right. and, and looking for this information. So I, I, I enjoy, strangely, to, to reading church minutes and elders meeting minutes. So mm. uh, getting to explore all of that over at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. I mean, those folks were so kind to host me and let me research their, their records. Uh, that, that was so much fun. I, I learned. Was there time. anything surprising that you saw in those? I mean— What's surprising, just watching how you do pastoral ministry. Just how ordinary that, it is. Yeah, yeah. How, and how ordinary it is in such a unique context. Yeah. You know, uh, and as a, you know, while I was doing my doctoral studies, I was a pastor. And I was so encouraged by that, just this mm-hmm. example of faithfulness. You know, he persevered in his convictions, even as the church was, was growing so large. And, and ministry became so difficult. Yeah. We often pray for revival, don't we? Yeah. But— what will we do if revival comes, right? If, if hundreds of people, if our people are awakened and they're sharing the gospel with their neighbors, people are being converted, hundreds of people are coming, like ministry becomes heavier and, yeah. and busier. Mm-hmm. Will we begin to look for shortcuts or will we, will we persevere in what the New Testament gives us for the church? Oh, yeah. That's, I, I, I remember looking through, so the church that I pastored before moved here was a 200 plus year old church, started in 1788. The, the building was, uh, erected in 1796, and 
there were minutes, the minutes and things that I could find, the old journals and things that were kind of, you know, they're crumbly and mm. um, they didn't go that far back, but they went pretty far back and they were in the little, um, you know, filing cabinet thing in, in my pastor study. And every now and then I would pull them out and open it up. I wish they were a little more detailed mm-hmm. than they were. A lot of times it was just a list of names at meetings. I was looking for pastor's diaries and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I just was struck how um, the substance of this church history was a list of names that have been by and large lost to church history. I didn't know there wasn't anybody famous mm-hmm. ever at this church or anything like that. It, you know, every now and then some family would drive through Middletown Springs, Vermont, and, you know, usually in, in one of the summer months and a, you know, minivan would pull up and somebody would come out and knock on the door and they'd mm-hmm. say, we're doing genealogical oh, research yeah. and we think our great, great, great such and such was here. And we wonder if we could look in the church archives and I would set them up at a table where they could <laughs> kind of look through these things. So there are you know, some people who remembered them or would look up these names. But by and large, it's just a list of names. Mm-hmm. And you just think, like, that's the substance of this church mm. is is not the building. not It's it's people yeah, who amen. we pray are also in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Lord yeah. knows who they are and yeah, knows that's right. um, just the ordinary. And it's just it's encouraging to know that someone of Spurgeon's stature, at least the stature that we give him, and, and which he had then as well, was just about the work of daily ministry. Yeah. And and so many of those names that, you know, we could look at are are, are not famous people or mm-hmm. influential mm-hmm. people. But were there, I mean, were there any famous people? I know, I know people attended the tabernacle, yeah. but did he have any members that would have been famous? That's a great question. Uh, okay. I'm not sure. I don't okay. have that off the top of my head. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's a future, uh, yeah. you know, doctoral That's uh, right. study, whatever. The, That's right. The That's celebrity right. members of But But you're exactly right about that point. <laughs> you know, some of the sweetest accounts in the minute books are – those where you can chronicle someone going through the discipline process mm. and being excommunicated by the church. But then there are a number of those stories where they're, they come to repentance you see them come back. and then they're restored to the mm. church. And it's, you can tell it's like a joyful gathering, you know? So, that's I mean, awesome. those kinds of stories is, that's what the church is all about, isn't it? Mm. Um, w- one of the other things that Spurgeon has, has a reputation for, at least in my mind, and I think in a few others as well, as, especially as we look back at church history, almost all of our heroes have some sort of asterisk uh, by them. And in my mind, some people's mind, you know, some of these asterisks are so big that you just wouldn't listen or read mm. to these or be influenced by folks. Um, I'm, I'm not there, but I do think we ought to have clear eyes about our mm-hmm. historical mm-hmm. quote unquote heroes and, 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 and influences. You look at, you know, uh, Edwards and Whitfield and, you know, they're tarnished. It's hard for people to think of anything related to Spurgeon. Like, if you're going to look back and go, who's the guy that doesn't have an asterisk? Right. It's Spurgeon. <laughs> he seems to be on the right side of, like, you know, even looking all the way back, he seems to be on the right side of every theological controversy. He's on the right side of, of, of the cultural controversy, at least from the, you know, Christian perspective. Yeah. Uh, on the slavery question, like, all of that. He's on the right side of all that. So I got to ask you, any caveats? Is there anything? I mean, I sometimes think— did he work himself to death? Maybe mm. is it, like was he a workaholic, yeah. or did he not take care of his health? Maybe that's the one thing we could say. Is what's the asterisk for Spurgeon if there is one? I would talk about that in terms of his overwork. Okay, uh, you know, surely how often he was away, how much he was preaching, that took a toll on his family. Yeah, uh, and and so folks, if if people wanted to dig into that, they could critique that. Though from all I can tell, and Ray Rhodes, who's also another Spurgeon scholar, he'll attest to this. I mean. He had a great marriage. You know, mm-hmm. He had a good relationship with his wife. Uh, by all accounts, his, his children, his boys spoke very positively of him. Yeah. You know, he was always home to lead family worship. But yeah, I think overwork, especially in terms of caring for his health, that, yeah. that would have been something. 
that that's not you don't want to follow that example. No. Well, but in in Baptist circles, that's sort of an acceptable mm. caveat, isn't it? It'd be an acceptable. Varnish. Well, it's not maybe less so today, but for yeah. a, a long time, we're like, yeah, man, burn out. I yeah, mean, like, yeah. he went full throttle for the Lord. That's a, yeah. that's a good thing, and right? maybe for some pastors, that's a good example, right? Like, mm. if, if there are lazy pastors, yeah, that's right. they'd get off your laurels. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. don't know. I don't. Okay. I haven't found that big big asterisk either. Yeah. But I'm, I, that, I'm and also it's, looking. It's one thing I love about him. It's you yeah. can recommend without going. Ah, oh, but there's you know, right, right. you know, this thing you just. Um, it's nice to have somebody. It is that nice. You can do it that. is very nice. Uh, right. Yeah. It, what's What's so striking about Spurgeon is that he's he's beloved across so many different traditions. That's right? true. Across yeah. Baptists, Presbyterians, even Charismatics love him. You know, you just go down the list. Yeah. yeah. What's your hope, brother, for the book? How do you hope people will read it? What do you hope they'll take away from it? I hope uh, pastors and church leaders read it and find encouragement for them as they seek to lead their churches faithfully. Uh, I hope church members we'll read this also and just kind of be introduced to some new ecclesiological categories, uh, even as they get to know Spurgeon. Uh, The encouragement for all these readers, uh, my hope is that regardless of your situation, whether you're a small church or big church, uh, your, your aim is faithfulness, right? Your aim is to follow what the new Testament teaches that the church should be. And, uh, and here's one kind of example from church history of somebody who was seeking to do that in his context. That's great. The book is Spurgeon, the Pastor, Recovering a Biblical and Theological Vision for Ministry. It's available now everywhere good books are sold. It's published by B&H. I hope you will pick it up. I think it'll be edifying to you. As always, dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You know your review might be read on the program. We, we always read good reviews. We read bad reviews. You, you could leave us a bad review, and, and we'll read that on there as well. We're equal opportunity review readers. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.